Happy Easter, Red Oak. Y'all responded. I didn't even say he is risen. Um, he is alive, though, and I'm so thankful um, for that. Because of the resurrection, we have hope and life, not only now, but beyond this life, which is awesome. Um, how many of you would say that, like, uh, long road trips are difficult? Yeah, some of you. Now, if you add little children to long road trips, it's a little bit more difficult, right? Um, this past week, uh, we went to uh, Florida with my side of the family and uh, for a few days. And that was like a, a nine-hour drive. Um, not too shabby. And um, we were listening to, anybody ever heard of the Pilgrim's Progress? Audiobooks are phenomenal things, like when you're on long road trips. Um, well, there's this thing called the Little Pilgrim's Progress, which is fascinating. And it's, it's actually much easier to understand than how John Bunyan actually wrote the book. So um, listen to Little Pilgrim's Progress. Your kids will understand it and appreciate it. And their imaginations is awesome. Um, and you get to talk about those things. But we were baffled while we were um, listening because... Uh, after church last Sunday, a few people stopped, and they were like, hey, Joseph, Brody didn't talk about this. You didn't really talk about it. In Genesis 19, like, it says that Lot's wife turned into salt. That's fascinating. I was like, yeah, it is. We don't know what that looks like, you know, but it's fascinating. Well, it's funny. John Bunyan actually put that in The Pilgrim's Progress, and Christian when he's walking and, and he's, he's being tempted to turn into the Misty Mountains off of the, the, the narrow way um, and to go through these caves, there is um, this pillar of salt. And, and he's like, ooh, I remember the evangelist gave me a book and in the book, he, I remember this story that this woman disobeyed God's word and her consequence was she immediately turned into a pillar of salt. And, and his friend who was with him was like, why in the world would this still be here though? Like why would God allow this to happen? And he said, probably as a reminder for us to not disobey. <laughs> and I was like, man, how simple is that? We don't know exactly what that looks like, right? Like if, if she like, was it like looking at Medusa and then like you you know you turn into stone like as you looked at her like or or was it like she like just turned into salt or I don't know I don't know what that looks like but that doesn't matter what matters is the point is that we should not disobey right and disbelief is is a part of disobeying because we are instructed to obey and believe and so um, after last Sunday I was talking with m my brother who was up visiting before we went on vacation and he was in the service with his family and he said um, he said man Genesis 19 is a really difficult passage um, he said I had a really good friend who um, left the faith because of Genesis 19 I said really and he said yeah he said he said he could not believe that God was good after reading that that story he said he said how could a good God put that in the Bible he said, what, like, what would, you, what would you say to him? And I said, well, I said, I've, I see it as um, the fact that it's in the Bible and that God didn't leave it out is testimony to the fact that it's real. 
and that he is a real God and he wasn't trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. He's not trying to fool anybody. If you were trying to fool somebody, if the, pers- if the people who wrote the Bible were trying to, to make it up to where you would believe it, would you not leave out the difficult parts? Right? Would you not leave out all of those things that's super hard to believe and it makes it kind of weird and kind of strange? You'd leave those things out. But the fact that it's in there is proof that this is God's word. This is not a man-made story. Like, only God could write this. Only God could, could give us his word and his ways like this, which is unbelievable. And one of the biggest, and, and having been in pseudonymity for so long, one of the biggest um, hiccups to believing Christianity, or if you talk to atheists or anybody who doesn't believe, they disbelieve, um, they have all these questions about a lot of things. And there's a lot of questions that you can have when you read the Bible. But the, the single greatest answer, what you have to do, is come back to what we've been talking about all night long which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do you do with Jesus? Because that is a historical, verifiable fact that Jesus died on a Roman cross, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and then he rose and you can't find his body anymore. That The grave is empty. What do you do with the resurrection? You either have to believe it or you don't believe it. And I don't know what, I mean, I've had a lot of stuff in my head over the past few weeks, but one thing that I've had in my head very often is a very old hymn. I didn't know if we were going to sing it tonight, and so we did not, and I don't think we're going to sing it after the sermon either, but um, Zach wouldn't let me sing it. I'm not a really good singer. Um, It's because he lives. This has been in my head for, for, for weeks. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Right? Like, that is beautiful. Because I know he holds the future, no matter what happens. Because he lives, life is worth the living just because he lives. Right? So we celebrate that. We celebrate that he's alive today. And we have a reason to live day by day. But that does not mean that we still don't have struggles, that we still don't mess up, that we still don't sin, right, in our lives. We still, we still struggle with that because we're weak. Even the strongest person in the faith, think about the strongest person you know right now who's been maybe walking with the Lord for years, and you're like, man, that person's holy. That person struggles with sin. They haven't arrived fully, and, they, and so they still have weaknesses, And we're going to see tonight in our passage a person who's been walking in the faith have weaknesses. And so that leads me to ask one question before we read our passage. What's your biggest weakness? What's your biggest weakness? And I'm not talking about physically, right? I'm not talking about physical strength or physical weakness. I'm not talking about mental strength or mental weakness. I'm talking about what's your biggest weakness when it comes to temptation, when it comes to sin. Everyone in the room has a, some type of sin that they struggle with more than another type of sin. Yeah, there's, a, there's various different types of, of sin. There's various different ways every day that you can mess up, every day that you can disobey, right? But, but for the most part, if I were to, to ask you, what's that one thing that you just continually repeat 
over and over again. You have this cycle of sin. You could probably think of it right now, right? So today, we're going to see Abraham repeat a sin he's so prone to falling back into. But what we need to do is remember how far Abraham has actually come, where he's come from, and where he is right now. So just to recap, God called Abraham to leave his home, and he obeyed the Lord and left, not knowing where he was going. Yet he sins in Egypt by not trusting the Lord and gives his wife, Sarai, to Pharaoh. God restored Abraham and his family safe in Canaan. Abram and Lot separate. You remember that, Genesis 13? Lot choosing the good land of Sodom. Abram trusting the promise of God and sojourning in tents. Abram builds an altar, worships the Lord faithfully. Lot gets captured. Abram and his men go and rescue him, bring his family back safely. Abram receives Melchizedek's blessing and believes the Lord's covenant promise of a son. The Lord appears to Abram and tells him of his covenant promise to provide a son that he'd be the father of many nations. And Abram is faithful for years and then doubts and has a son by Hagar, his slave girl. And for 13 years, Abram and Sarai pin their hopes on Ishmael until God appears and reminds them of his covenant promise. He changes their names from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah and promises that they will have a son called Isaac. And Abram, Abraham believes listens to God and obeys God's word by instituting circumcision as a sign of the covenant promise. So the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abraham again, announces to him that Sarah in her old age is going to have, she's going to become pregnant, she's going to give birth to a son in a year. His name's going to be Isaac. And God is faithful to Abraham, is patient with Abraham. He allows Abraham to intercede for Sodom and because of this saves his nephew Lot from the city's destruction. And through all of this, Abraham is portrayed as a strong man of the faith, blessed by the Lord, listening to the Lord, praying for his people, worshiping the Lord alone. This is why he is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Yet even this man of faith struggled with repeated sin. So before we see it in chapter 20, in Genesis chapter 20, let's pray before we read the text. Father, I thank you so much for tonight. I thank you that we have already had this opportunity to worship you and to proclaim that you are alive, that death has been defeated, and that we could remember your sacrifice, your body broken, your blood spilled for us. I thank you for this time that we get to, to read your word, examine your word, and dive into your word. I pray, Lord, that you would turn our hearts towards you. Father, that, that you would um, remove any doubts, any disbelief. Father, I pray that you would grant faith right now, even as we go through your word. Lord, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves, that we would be able to repent of repeated sin in our lives, and that we would walk away from this place more faithful servants of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Genesis chapter 20, starting at verse 1, says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. So he moved his tent, after the destruction of Sodom, he moves south towards Egypt. And then it says that he sojourned in Gerar. So he moves back north towards the promised land. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So I was listening um, to a sermon recently, and the pastor said this. He said, the key to being a good golfer 
lies not in the ability to make a few good shots, but in the ability to make very few bad ones. I, that's a really good point. Even if you've never played golf before, you know it's not easy, right? Consistency is key in golf and in life. Good golfers are consistent, and they make little mistakes. So that doesn't have to be flashy. But what we see in Abraham's life is there's some inconsistency as he's walking in the faith. He is not a new believer anymore. We need to remember that. That's why we talked about the context. He, he's been walking with the Lord for a while now. He's not young in the faith. He knew better. He reverts back to this old sin instead of putting his trust in the Lord. And that sin is distrust. This is the repeated sin of Abraham. This is very similar to how he acted in Genesis chapter 12 in Egypt with Pharaoh and Sarah. So why did he lie? Why this repeated lie? After years of God appearing to him and speaking with him and telling him the covenant promise and announcing its nearness, right? I, was, I, was, I was reading this over and over again. I was wondering to myself, how in the world could Abraham do this again? Like, the dude has seen the Lord. God showed up to him. He's seen God do amazing things. God's talked to him. How many of us have been like, I, I just want to hear his voice. If I could hear the Lord speak to me, I'd believe. If I could just see something, if I see a miracle, I'd believe. And Abraham has seen all of that. He's seen more than we ever will. How in the world could Abraham do this again? After all that God has done for him, how could he do this? After all God has told him, how could he do this? And then I was reminded that I needed to look in the mirror and ask myself the very same question. Joseph, how could you, how could you do that again? How could you repeat the same sin again? Has anybody ever made the same mistake twice? Yeah, everybody, right? Everybody in the room has made the same mistake twice. If we haven't learned from every single one of our mistakes, that's why I love the Bible, because it's full of people who've made mistakes besides Jesus. So I see myself in Abraham's failure to be consistent in his faith. In respect to our repeated sin cycles, one commentator said this, sins that may not appeal to others maintain a deadly lure for us and promote a tragic recidivism. That's a big word. It just means reoccurring. Abraham's clinging sin when pressured was to trust himself rather than God. Generally, he did trust God. Abraham believed the divine promise and it was credited to him as righteousness. But sometimes when pushed, he decided to give God a little help with a little lie. We've all been there. If we're honest, we've all done that. We're all guilty of, of giving God a little, a little help. Even the greatest among us, even the one with the most faith, we still struggle and we fall daily. Isn't God rich in mercy and grace? Aren't you thankful that the word says that like his mercies are new every day? 
I was walking with my family today, and, and we were reading through Psalm 103, and, um, and one part of that psalm, it says that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. That is really, really good news. And, and you might be wondering, like, how in the world could we find the gospel in Genesis chapter 20? Why would we preach Genesis 20 on Easter Sunday? Well, the stage is set right now with Abraham and Sarah's sin for God to show grace and mercy. Look at verse 3. Genesis chapter 20, verse 3. But God. That's how that verse starts. But God. God intervenes. But is that little bitty conjunction coupled with God creates one of the most beautiful phrases in the entire Bible. But God. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read just a few verses. I didn't even select all of them. Just a few verses of where it has but God in the Bible. And every time that I get and to it, I'm going to pause and you're going to say, but God. All right, really strong like you believe it. Here we go. Psalm 73, 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. It actually doesn't say that, but it says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up underneath it. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Acts 3, 15 says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 7, 9 through 10 says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. Acts 13, 29 through 30 says, When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, raised him from the dead. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God. All things are possible. And definitely my favorite is Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul is writing, and he, he says in the first three verses, you were dead in your sin, you were disobedient, you were under God's wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Praise God for his intervention for us, right? Well, let's see how he intervenes in Genesis 20. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So God spoke to this pagan king 
Because God is acting to preserve and protect his promise. It is a strange thing that is happening right here. It's, it's very strange because we're like, wait, Sarah's really old. Why would Abimelech want to marry her? She's still hot? I don't know. I mean, they aged differently back then. So maybe 90-year-old Sarah looked like she was like 50. I don't know, you know? Um, more, more likely, it was because of like political, socioeconomic status, like alliances. Like he's like, I've heard of Abraham. If I marry his sister, then like we won't fight. All right? What's interesting is that we, we are kind of like Abraham and Abimelech in this passage. We have these pesky reoccurring sins in our lives like Abraham. But I can feel the helpless decree from God to Abimelech. I've heard it myself. You're a dead man. You're a dead man. And that's true of every single human being apart from Jesus Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're a dead man. You're dead in your sin. Look at verse 4 to how Abimelech responds to God. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself, Abraham, say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And so Abimelech responds and acknowledges the uprightness of his own heart in the matter, explaining to the Lord that Sarah lied too. So God acknowledges Abimelech's heart, but reminds us that he is still in sovereign control. Look at verse 6. Then God said to him in, in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So God would not allow his promise in Genesis 18.10 to be compromised. Abimelech was telling God that the integrity of his own heart kept him from sinning, but God was like, yeah, it was the integrity of your heart because I put that integrity in there and kept you from doing what you would have done if I didn't stop you. The reality is we have no innate integrity in our hearts apart from Jesus. We have no victory over sin apart from Jesus. Much in the very same way, we have no righteousness apart from Jesus. God not only intervenes for Abimelech, but he also provides an intercessor. Look at verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. That's, and interesting enough, this is the first time that the word prophet is used in the Bible. So that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all of yours. So God gives instructions to be followed, and if they aren't followed, there's consequences. And the consequence for disobedience is death. So God labels Abraham as a prophet and says he's going to pray. He's going to intercede for Abimelech to live. So let's be astonished at how God intervenes and fights for the purity of marriage. When Abraham wouldn't stand up for his wife, and wouldn't trust the Lord. God does. In his commentary, Alan Ross says, this little story warns that God desires the purity of marriage for his covenant people, 
to preserve them. So God is acting to preserve and protect his promise because he designed it to come through the purity of marriage between Abraham and Sarah. God is longing for their marriage to stay intact more than Abraham is. He won't let anything mess up his sovereign plan. Look at verse 8. See how Abimelech responds. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all of these things. And the men were very much afraid. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night just like startled? Like you were dead asleep and you're like, what was that? Or maybe it was like a dream that you were like, oh, I'm really thankful that that was a dream. And it's not reality. Well, Abimelech, he rises early and he knew that it was the Lord God who had spoken to him and given him instructions to be followed because he shares it with his men immediately and they're all afraid. And perhaps they'd heard of the God of Abraham before. Perhaps they'd heard of what God did to Sodom. So Abimelech and his men are rightly filled with the fear of God's punishment. That word afraid has also been used in Genesis previously when Adam and Eve sinned and God comes calling in the garden it says in Genesis 3:10 Adam said I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself Genesis 18 when Sarah had laughed about what God had said it says but Sarah denied it saying I did not laugh for she was afraid and he said but you did laugh We know that God had mercy on Sarah. Will he have mercy on Abimelech also? Abimelech and his men act in urgent haste. We see immediate obedience from him. I think we can learn something from Abimelech here in this passage. Immediate obedience. The word of the Lord comes to him and he responds. Look at verse 9. Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? So Abimelech is like, why, bro? Like, why would you do this to me? Why would you deceive me like this? Why would you do this to my people? Abraham's actions have brought deadly consequences on Abimelech and all of his people. Another lesson for us here is that our sin not only affects us, but has consequences for other people as well. Sin is never done, like, just by yourself. Even if you are by yourself, it always affects other people. It affects those closest to you, and it affects more people than you will ever realize. You better believe that Abraham's sin put Sarah in a compromising position. And it, it's clearly has almost brought death upon Abimelech's whole household. So here in verse 9, we have an unbeliever saying a very humbling statement to a believer. You have done things that ought not to have been done. I mean, it's a really sad day when an unbeliever can spot inconsistency in the life of a believer. What is Abraham's response? Look at verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. 
Besides, she's indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So Abraham acts in a self-preserving manner. His justification for not trusting in God's protection is not valid. But aren't we so prone to repeat sin before we're quick to point fingers at Abraham? We're prone to not trust God's word even when we see him work in miraculous ways like Abraham did. We also learn that Abraham's sin weakened his witness. Our sin always not only affects us, but a watching world. They're looking at followers of Jesus. Of Abraham and Lot's sin, Kent Hughes said this, both of their lives are ominous warnings to those of us in the train of faith, the church. It is entirely possible for the righteous through their sins to nullify their witness to the world. Make no doubt about it. Your sin, undealt with in your life, hinders your prayers and weakens your witness. Because the world is watching. Ironically, Abraham said, I did it because there's no fear of God in this place. But ironically, Abimelech and his men fear the Lord more than Abraham did. Abimelech obeys the Lord immediately, and he actually goes above and beyond by giving gifts and land, which is significant, to Abraham and Sarah. Look at verse 14. Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah to his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. So in verses 14 through 16, we see God's grace through Abimelech to Abraham and Sarah. We saw God's grace to Abraham when he left Egypt. Pharaoh, right, blessed him and gave him a ton of stuff when he didn't deserve it. That's what grace is, getting things you don't deserve. And so here, when he does the same thing, he is getting blessed. God's grace is just showering over Abraham and Sarah. So God not only provides and not only protects, but he is, he's protecting this covenant promise. And this is what Kent Hughes says. He says, in offering Abraham land, the king removed Abraham's alien status. So he was a to- sojourner. He was living in tents. He had no land of his own. The thousand shekels of silver was an awesome monetary gift. It was the price of 20 bride prices. So Abraham's folly was met with amazing grace, as was our folly in our sin. In the face of my sin, in the face of your sin, God meets us with amazing grace. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but... Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. And later, a few verses later in Ephesians 1, it says, For through him, that's in Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
Praise God for Jesus interceding for us, for him adopting us into his family, giving us grace. It's a lot more grace than Abraham even got and Sarah even got. Look at verse 17 and 18 to see how Abraham intercedes for Abimelech. And then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So God healed Abimelech because of Abraham's intercession. Notice a few things we can learn about God from this passage. God acts when his people pray. He's the author of life. He closes and opens wombs. So we should fear him. We should not try to play God. Alan Ross in his commentary said, God withholds or grants children. God withholds or grants children. Fear him and live in integrity. He has the power to give life and to take life. He is the author of life. So while Abraham was a man of faith, a prophet, and an intercessor, Jesus is our better intercessor and our perfect prophet. God used Abraham, a sinful man, to intercede for Gentile sinners to save them from God's holy wrath and to preserve the child of promise. If God did that for him, how much more would Jesus' perfect life, his pure blood, his propitiation be for our salvation? Jesus is our only hope. He is our resurrection hope. And if you're an unbeliever today, then Jesus, this Jesus who died, was buried, and rose from the grave, he defeated the power of sin and death, wants you to believe in him and worship him and fall on your knees like doubting Thomas, saying, my Lord and my God. Repent, believe, and worship the author of life today. You'll have the best Easter you've ever had in your life. Way better than chocolate Easter bunnies and Easter egg hunts. If you're a believer today, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. We have no need to fear. Here are some sobering questions I've asked myself. I want to ask you as we close. If you know where you have failed to be consistent in your faith, have you repented of those? Or are you continually living in a cycle of sin? Where are you not living in alignment with Jesus' will and ways where you know he's spoken very clearly? What repeated sin in your life do you need to surrender to the Lord? Where could the world look at you and say, according to your Jesus, you have done what ought not to be done. Let's be consistent as we walk in faith because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's take him at his word. I pray that God would give us the, the faith and the strength to respond to his word with joy today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word that you have not withheld anything from us. If you did not withhold your son from us, surely you have not withheld anything else from us. And you have shown us time and time again 
what we should do and what we should not do, how we should live and how we should not live. I thank you and praise you for giving us stories like this to where we can learn from those who've gone before us. Lord, I pray that, that we would abandon repeated cycles of sin for those of your children who know you. I pray that we would repent, Lord, that we would surrender. For those who do not know you, I pray that you would grant the gift of faith all because of your grace. They would believe today for the very first time, thereby having the greatest Easter they've ever experienced, having life in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.